This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I'm happy to be with you this week for the Jewish News Hour. This week we'll start off reading from the Times of Israel. First article from the Times of Israel, Lapid finalizes coalition deals with all parties in incoming change government. Amina is the last faction to formally announce it has signed an agreement with Yeshatid before Friday afternoon deadline ahead of Sunday's swearing-in vote. Coalition agreements between the, right, the eight parties that have joined forces to replace the outgoing coalition headed by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu were completed and signed Friday, paving the way for the 61-strong coalition to be sworn in Sunday office. Yesh Atid leader Yair Lapid inked coalition agreements with the Ra'am and Yisrael Beitenu parties Friday morning. Hours later, Yesh Atid signed and released agreements with the Labor, Blue and White, New Hope, and Yemenah parties and the last two deals had been finalized. The signing of the agreements came after Yesh Atid finalized the coalition Friday. Under Israeli law, coalition and made public at least four hours before this vote. However, with the vote scheduled for a Knesset session in 4 p.m. on Sunday, and with Saturday the Jewish Day of Rest, not counting, parties in the emerging coalition had until Friday afternoon to finalize and submit the agreements. A joint statement from Yeshatid and Amina said all the agreements had been submitted to the Knesset Secretariat. The agreements, along with the government's core principles, are open to the public and can be reviewed, the statement said. Under the terms of the new coalition, Yamina's Naftali Bennett is determined to find until August 2023, when Lapid will take over from him until the end of the Knesset term in November 2025. The signing of these agreements brings to an end two and a half years of political crisis. We are faced with great challenges, and all the citizens of Israel are looking to us as And it was quoted as saying in the statement, the government will work for all the Israeli public, religious, secular, ultra-Orthodox, Arab, without exception, as one. Lapid vowed the government would prioritize what's best for the country. That's what this unity government has been formed to do. All the partners in this government are committed first and foremost to the people of Israel, he said in a statement. The intended Lapid-Bennett government is backed by eight of the 13 parties that won seats in the March 23rd election for an expected total of 61 votes in the 120-member Knesset. Yesh Atid, 17 seats. Lewin White, 8 Yisrael Betenu, 7, Labor, 7, Yamina, 6 of its 7 MKs, New Hope, 6, Meretz, 6, and Ra'am, 4. The coalition represents an unprecedentedly diverse mix of parties from right, Yeshati, uh, Yamina, New Hope, and Yisrael Betenu, to center, Yeshatid and Blue and White, to left, Labor and Meretz. In addition to the conservative Islamic party Ra'am, their leaders, which unified in opposition to Netanyahu's continued rule, have vowed to try to work via consensus to heal rifts in Israeli society 
without crossing their own ideological red lines. Netanyahu has been trying to woo defectors from the ranks of some of the parties in recent days without success. As things stand, the Bennett-Lapid coalition is expected to be approved in the Knesset by a wafer-thin 61 to 59 votes. In terms of top ministerial positions under the emerging coalition agreements, Lapid will serve as foreign minister in the first two years of the government. Blue and White leader Benny Gantz will remain defense minister and finance ministry will be held by Yisrael Batanu leader Avigdor Lieberman. New Hope leader Gideon Sa'ar will be justice minister, while Yamina's Ayela Chekhed will be interior minister. Labor's Marav Michaeli received the transportation for portfolio, and her fellow party member Omer Barlev will be public security minister. Merit's leader Nitzan Horowitz will be appointed health minister, while fellow party member Tamar Zandberg will be environmental protection minister. Yeshatid will start with four ministerial positions, and Yamina will get three. New Hope and Blue and White will have four ministries each, while Yisrael Betenu, Labor, and Meretz will each have three. The deal between Ra'am and Yeshatid includes a deputy ministerial post for Ra'am in the Prime Minister's office, chairmanship of the Knesset Interior Committee, a deputy Knesset speaker, and chairmanship of the Arab Affairs Committee. That deal also includes agreements to work to pass a five-year spending plan totaling 30 billion shekels through 2026 to reduce gaps in Arab Druze, Circassian, and Bedouin society, approve a five-year crime-fighting plan worth uh, 2.5 billion shekels, adopt a 20 billion shekel plan for transportation infrastructure in Arab communities, extend a freeze of the cabinet's law on building restrictions until the end of 2024, and formally recognize three Bedouin communities in the south within 45 days of the government swearing in. In the agreement with Yisrael Batenu, the parties agreed the government will advance policies that Lieberman's right-wing secularist party campaigned on, such as the teaching of core curriculum subjects in all schools and public transportation on, on the Sabbath. Along with the finance ministry, Yisrael Betenu will also receive the agricultural ministry and the chairmanship of the Knesset Finance Committee. The party also can appoint another minister in the treasury and one of its lawmakers will be a deputy speaker. The coalition agreement with Labor guarantees spots for the center-left party's lawmakers on numerous governmental and parliamentary committees, including the chairmanship of the Knesset's Constitution, Law, and Justice Committee during the government's first two years when Bennett is Prime Minister. After Lapid takes over the Premiership, a Yesh Atid Knesset member will, will chair the committee, while Mike Kelly will get a spot on the Judicial Appointments Committee. The deal between Yesh Atid and Labor also says no additional factions can join the coalition without the latter's sign-off. With Blue and White, Yeshatid agreed to form a state commission of inquiry to probe the deadly crush during Lagba Omer celebrations at Mount Meron in northern Israel this year in which 45 people were killed. The deal with New Hope included an agreement to advance legislation that would limit any prime minister to eight years in office, potentially curtailing Netanyahu's political career. The coalition's guiding principles that all parties signed on to include a commitment to maintain the status quo regarding religion and state affairs. 
Yamina will be able to veto any bill concerning matters of religion and state, but also said in a statement that it would work to promote competition in the field of kosher supervision. The parties agreed that the coalition will work to pass a defense ministry version of legislation formalizing exemptions to mandatory military service for many ultra-Orthodox seminary students. The emerging coalition said it also plans to examine the possibility of national civil service as an alternative to military service for certain demographic groups that generally don't serve in the military, Haredi Jews and Arab Israelis. The incoming government will also keep all civil control and enforcement in Area C of the West Bank under the Defense Ministry, according to the coalition agreements. The coalition principles state that Gantz will be allowed certain resources to help better enforce building regulations in Area C, the roughly 60% of the West Bank that is under Israeli military and civilian control. The top-level security cabinet will reportedly include three Yamina members, Bennett, Shaked, and Matan Kahana. There will be three members of New Hope, Sa'ar Elkin, and Yoaz Hendel, along with the Israel Batenu's Lieberman. Yeshatid will only have one security cabinet member, Lapid. There will also be two representatives from Labor, Mike Kelly and Bar-Lev, one representative from Blue and White, Gantz, and one from Meretz, Harwitz. And next from the Times of Israel, Netanyahu Associates, he knows he can't prevent change government taking power. By Times of Israel staff. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has reconciled himself to the fact that his political rivals are on the cusp of forming a government that will see him removed as Premier Associates of Israel's longest-serving leader said Thursday. Members of Netanyahu's circle told Channel 13 that he is reconciled to the fact that his 12-year consecutive term will come to an end on Sunday and is determined to fight the change government from the opposition benches. To bring it down from the opposition, the associates were quoted as saying. His comments came a day after Netanyahu's Likud party for the first time said he is committed to a peaceful transition of power, clarifying the premier's claims of election fraud. Netanyahu's office has refused to state whether he will attend the traditional handover ceremony of the premiership on Monday, and a transitional briefing with the incoming Prime Minister Neftali Bennett has not yet been scheduled, with the government swearing less than three days away. And next from the Times of Israel, after 60 years of decay, Budapest's Grand Rumbach Synagogue has new lease on life. Inaugurated Thursday, the richly renovated synagogue compound, a World War II deportation point for Jews sent to their death, is now a lively, multi-purpose Jewish cultural center. By Jakob Schwartz, Budapest. Several dozen members of the Hungarian Jewish community shuffled down busy Cowerley Street on Thursday afternoon, accompanied by a trumpet French horn and trombone blow, blowing marchy Jewish standards. Their destination, the Rumbach Synagogue, was located just down a quiet side street a few hundred feet from its well-known counterpart, Budapest Doheny Synagogue, the largest Jewish house of worship in Europe and second largest in the world. And though Thursday's jubilant procession marked the Rumbach's rededication and celebrating the reception of its inaugural Torah scroll started in the Doheny Synagogue's garden, event organizers decided they would take the long way around. 
The community's most prominent members took turns carrying the Torah beneath the traditional four-posted wedding canopy. Two stepping around bewildered patrons at street-side tables who put down their donor kebabs and beers to gawk. Hanging a right onto the trendy Karali Street, the group passed a line of painted black storefronts where tattooed 20-something sipped coffee under LGBTQ pride flags. One of the gray-haired revelers had managed to find a tambourine and accompanied the horns enthusiastically. The Rumbach Synagogue, named for the street on which it stands in Budapest's formerly Jewish-majority 7th District, long predates the cafes and bars that have sprung up around it in recent years. Completed in 1872, the towering Moorish structure once housed a vibrant congregation. In 1941, it served as a deportation point for 20,000 Jews, refugees who fled southward after the Nazi invasion of Poland, as well as Jews living in Hungary for decades, but lacking proper papers. They were all eventually sent to Kamienets, Podoliski, in Ukraine, where they were executed. The synagogue sat decaying and abandoned in the heart of this city for over six decades. After changing hands numerous times during and after the socialist era, the building was eventually returned to the Jewish community by the Hungarian government in 2006. Since 2014, its renovation has proceeded in fits and starts as the community dealt with logistics and funding. Most recently, the COVID-19 pandemic delayed the reopening by about a year. Robert Froelich, the chief rabbi of Mazashiz, the Jewish umbrella organization with which the synagogue is now affiliated, told the Times of Israel that at one point over the years the building's roof had rotted through completely and birds had taken up residence in the sanctuary. I was in the synagogue as a child and I remember how it was dull, gray, and dark, he said. The colorful paint of the wall panels was almost completely faded and gone and there were no ornaments. It was almost in ruins. It was a big fear that it would collapse or that the government of that time, the so-called communist regime, would destroy it. Once inside the synagogue, Thursday's attendees marveled at the ornate hand-painted red, blue, and gold panels adorning the sanctuary's walls as two bar mitzvah boys celebrated their coming of age by helping carry the Torah scroll to the restored ark. Nearly two stories tall, it still reaches less than halfway to the magnificent domed ceiling. Colossal gold columns support eastern-style arches illuminated by portal-stained glass windows 10 feet in diameter. In the center of the room, a gold circle the size of a manhole cover hides a hydraulic-driven elevator's canter dais, the only such apparatus in the world to grace a synagogue sanctuary. We try to mix the old with the new, synagogue director Henriette Kiss told the Times of Israel. The house, as Kiss calls it, shortened from the House of Coexistence, the name given to it by the Hungarian government in the original treatment, is a sprawling compound behind a decadent patterned brick facade, enveloping either side of the enormous sanctuary. In addition to its religious function, the Rumbach, in its new incarnation, emerges as a Jewish cultural center welcoming all denominations and faiths. The Rumbach's grand reopening was the result of years of negotiations, patience, and an $11.2 million grant from the Hungarian state. The event was attended by Budapest Mayor Gergely Karasconi, 
Israeli ambassador to Hungary Yaakov Hadas Handelsman, Hungarian Minister of Families Katalin Novak, and World Jewish Congress President Ronald Lauder, who went on to meet with and thank Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban following the ceremony. Brumbach should be a space open for everyone regardless of if they are Jewish or not, regardless if they have Jewish relatives or friends, if they are foreigners crossing through town, if they are poor people or students, said Masish's president, Andres Heisler, in a speech about the event. This building will not be a synagogue for just one type of community. It will be open for all Jewish communities living in Budapest and visitors that arrive in our city. Where the old rabbi and Beatles quarters were once housed, there is now a kosher cafe, an homage to the city's history of coffee culture and conference rooms. The Mosaic Hub, a nonprofit incubator on the building's fourth floor, provides office space to some 20 Jewish and non-Jewish organizations, including charities, youth groups, and the country's only professional Jewish theater company. A multimedia exhibition space on the third floor shows the history and current life of Hungarian Jewry and uses the notable Pulitzer family, which included uh, media magnate Joseph Pulitzer, as an example of Jewish integration and contribution to Hungarian society. The synagogue will also host music, theater, and art exhibitions and is equipped with sound, lighting, and projection systems as well as a staging area with dressing rooms and showers. The turnstiles being installed in one of the building's entrances suggested that tourists will be able to take all this in for a fee. KISS confirmed that starting in late July or early August, the center will indeed be officially open to visitors and admission will be charged. KISS also expressed hope that the cultural center would become an attractive venue for Israeli artists and musicians in the coming years. While the government funding was conditional on the space being used as a non-denominational cultural center during weekdays for the next five years, KISS also said that the center's leadership has a personal investment in its religious nature and voiced hope that Shabbat services on Friday night and Saturday would attract a crowd. When I started the project, I knew the history of Rumbach and that it was a unique synagogue because it was planned by renowned architect Otto Wagner and I love his work, so I was interested in it culturally, but less so as a synagogue, said Kiss. But when COVID started, my husband found a box of documents, and since he had the extra time due to the lockdown, he started to go through them with our daughter, and we were surprised to find a paper documenting his grandfather's bar mitzvah, which took place at the Rumbach in 1922. That was the point where he realized that the Rumbach is more than a synagogue. It's part of our origins, our family history, Kiss said, and I can say that it has become the center of my heart. Mashehiz's uh, chief rabbi Froelich echoed Kiss's sentiments with cautious optimism. It's impossible to control the future. My hopes are that the reopening of the synagogue will reopen the hearts of the children and grandchildren of the synagogue's former members, and maybe, I say it quietly but with a big hope, this will be a reason for them to go back to the synagogue and reform a congregation, Froelich said. And next from the Times of Israel, in stunning, revealing interview, ex-Mossad chief warns Iran defends Netanyahu. Days after stepping down, Yossi Cohen gives specific details of Mossad actions against Tehran nuclear program, 
his role in UAE deal, his Gaza error, and his prime ministerial hopes by Times of Israel step. Yossi Cohen, who retired as head of the Mossad last week, provided highly specific details of recent Mossad activity against Iran, his interactions with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, his role in Israel's normalization with the UAE, and his own undercover career in an extraordinary interview on Israeli television broadcast on Thursday night. Cohen intimated that his agency blew up Iran's underground centrifuge facility at Natanz, gave a precise description of the 2018 operation in which the Mossad stole Iran's nuclear archive from safes in a Tehran warehouse, confirmed that Iran's assassinated top nuclear scientist Moshin uh, Fakhrizadeh had been in Mossad's sites for years and said the regime needs to understand that Israel means what it says when it vows to prevent Iran from attaining nuclear weapons. In what would appear to be the most revelatory interview ever given by a Mossad chief so close to the end of his active service, Cohen, who was appointed by Netanyahu, said he did not rule out seeking to become prime minister one day, though he wasn't contemplating such an ambition at the moment. The interview was presumably approved by Israel's military censors, and Cohen was circumspect on numerous occasions, but nonetheless talked about his career, philosophy, and key operations with an openness and detail radically atypical of spy chiefs, especially those whose service has only recently ended. Early in the more than an hour of conversations for journalist Ilan Dayan's Uvda, fact, documentary show on Israel's Channel 12, Cohen indicated that he was deeply familiar with Iran's various nuclear sites and said that if given the opportunity, he would take Diane to the underground cellar at Natanz, where he said the centrifuges needed, uh, centrifuges used to spin. It no longer looks like it did, Diane asks. Indeed, said Cohen, unless they fixed it, unless they fixed it, she said. It doesn't look like it used to look, insisted Cohen. Cohen did not explicitly confirm responsibility for sabotage at Natanz in the interview, but said more generally, we say very clearly to Iran, we won't let you get nuclear weapons. What don't you understand? Diane noted that two major blasts at Natanz were attributed in foreign reports to the Mossad of the past year, and said a huge quantity of explosives were built into a marble platform used to balance the centrifuges. The man who was responsible for these explosions, it, became, it becomes clear, made sure to supply the, to the Iranians the marble foundation on which the centrifuges are placed, Diane said. As they install this foundation within the Detans facility, they have no idea that it already includes a huge quantity of explosives. Regarding Fakhrizadeh, identified by Israel as the father of Iran's rogue nuclear weapons program, who was killed in an ambush near Tehran in November 2020, that has widely been attributed to Israel. Cohen said that he was watched by Mossad for years and that the Mossad was physically close to him before November 2020. Fakhrizadeh most troubled us from the point of view of the science, the knowledge the scientists of the Iranian military nuclear program, said Cohen. Therefore, he was a target for intelligence gathering for many years. Interviewer Diane said of Fakhrizadeh's killing, Yossi Cohen cannot take responsibility for this action, but his personal signature is on the entire operation. 
Asked whether he believes killings of potent Israeli enemies are worthwhile, Cohen said, if the man constitutes a capability that endangers the citizens of Israel, he must stop existing. In some cases, however, Cohen said Israel conveys the message to such a potential target that if he is prepared to change profession and not harm us any longer, then yes, implying such a target would be spared. Did any such people get the hint and become, say, a piano player? Diane asked. Yes, said Cohen, and added that this pleased him. Others, however, he said, did not get the message that this was an offer they shouldn't refuse. For all the Mossad's actions, the Iranians are closer than ever to the bomb Dion suggested. Not so, said Cohen. That's not true. In the interview, Cohen described the planning and execution of the Mossad's theft of a vast archive of Iranian nuclear documents from a Tehran warehouse on the night of January 31, 2018, an operation for which Israel has openly taken credit. He said he ran the operation from the Mossad command center in Tel Aviv and that the agency had begun working towards it on his instructions two years earlier. We understood they were secretly storing their nuclear secrets, things we didn't know, and decided we needed to see what the Iranians are planning for us, Cohen said, and I told my people to prepare to bring this home because it would potentially show the wider picture of the Iranian program. Twenty Mossad agents were involved on the ground, none of them Israeli nationals, said Diane. Mossad built a rep replica of the site, learned all about the containers holding the material, and knew how the containers were arranged, Cohen indicated. We had a certain problem on the night itself, said Cohen, regarding something we recognized that had apparently changed, but the decision was taken to proceed as planned. Cohen said they knew they had seven hours maximum at the site after that trucks and guards and workers would arrive and you can't be jumping off fences and bursting through walls. The team neutralized alarms, removed the warehouse doors, and reportedly opened 32 safes holding the material. Opening safes like those takes more than minutes for each, Cohen said. When images of the Farsi documents and other material in the safes were screened in the Tel Aviv command center in real time, and we realized that we have what we wanted, that we are on Israel's mil uh, on Iran's military nuclear program, said Cohen, there was incredible excitement for us all. Diane indicated that Mossad had numerous decoy trucks driving around the Tehran area to throw off the Iranians off the scent of the single truck, bringing the 50,000 documents and 163 discs out of Iran overland, and Cohen did not deny this. He said the Iranians knew by the morning the warehouse had been emptied and all exit points from the country were closed. We knew they'd chase us, he said. They'd taken their most sensitive secrets. Because of concerns that the material might not make it out, much of it was transferred digitally to Tel Aviv before the truck crossed the border, Dion revealed. Cohen said he told Netanyahu once we had left the site that the first part of the operation was completed and that now the challenge was to bring the material home. He said all the operatives are alive and well, though some of them needed to be extracted from Iran. Netanyahu unveiled the trove at an April 2018 press conference in which he called the operation one of the greatest intelligence achievements in Israeli history and proof that Iran lied when claiming that it is not seeking nuclear weapons. 
presented with criticism that he was too close to Netanyahu and that he had allowed the Prime Minister to use this and other Mossad successes for his political needs. Cohen noted that at the April 2018 press conference, Netanyahu discussed the material, but he didn't discuss the operation. He said all of Israel's security chiefs discussed, together with Netanyahu, the pros and cons of making the hall public, and none of them opposed it. Reminded that his predecessor, Tamir Pardo, spoke out against humiliating the enemy, Cohen was adamant that exposing the intelligence material was the right decision, and that Netanyahu acted with professional integrity in this and other dealings. It was important to us that the world should see the material, said Cohen, who noted that he also personally briefed Allied intelligence chiefs. And it was important that it resonate with the Iranian leadership to say to them, Dear friends, one, you've been penetrated. Two, we are watching you. Three, the era of hiding and lies is over. Among the other revelations in the interview, Cohen said he was inspired as a young man by the British Secret Service TV drama Callum, and that Callum was his initial, initial Mossad codename. He later became known as the model because of his well-groomed appearance. My father taught me how to iron, he noted. Cohen, 59, was recruited by Mossad at age 22 when studying overseas in London. He grew up Orthodox and was one of the few Orthodox agents in Mossad that he joined. He said he had hundreds of passports in his career and recruited hundreds of assets. He described one unit as a Hezbollah operative recruited in Europe, who he said is still alive. Married with four children, Cohen spoke briefly about his family, including his son Yonatan, who has cerebral palsy. Appointed by Netanyahu in December 2015, he said he hoped to become Mossad chief from the second day he worked for the organization. Questioned about his ties to several wealthy individuals, including U.S.-Israeli Hollywood mogul Arnon Milkan and the Australian tycoon James Packer, both of whom figure in one of the corruption cases against Netanyahu, he said that in retrospect you need to be more sensitive regarding such ties. He said a large gift by Packer for his daughter's wedding was being returned. He denied it was as much as the reported $20,000 and said it had been approved by the Mossad's legal advisor. He said Milhan offered him millions to start the cyber business and that he seriously considered it and might have accepted the job if he had not been appointed Mossad chief. He denied that Netanyahu ever asked him if he would be personally loyal to him when he was considered for the top Mossad post. His rival for the job, codenamed N, was provided, uh, was reportedly asked such a question by Netanyahu and apparently failed to provide a satisfactory answer. Cohen also said he never discussed the post with Sarah Netanyahu. Of his relationship with Netanyahu, Cohen said, I know I pay a price for my closeness to Netanyahu, and that the relationship of trust I have with the Prime Minister is very useful for the Mossad's operations and its development. He denied allegations that he is so close to Netanyahu as to compromise the Mossad's independence. I work for the highest purpose. I don't work for the Prime Minister, he said. Deeply involved in the shaping of Israel's 2020 normalization agreements with the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, Sudan, and Morocco, he said forging ties with the UAE had required diffusing the obstacle posed by Mossad's assassination in the Dubai hotel room 
In 2010, a senior Hamas figure, Mahmoud Mabou, a Hamas arms importer also wanted by Israel for terrorism. It was a mine we needed to defuse. It was on the table when the UAE negotiations got going. We dealt with it and removed the obstacles we set. There are operations that are exposed to our sorrow. A set of incidents such as the mob who hit. When it's exposed, it hurts. It's unpleasant and it's embarrassing. He denied helping Netanyahu politically by trying to arrange a pre-election trip to the UAE before the March 23rd, 2021 elections. Mossad work plans are not remotely influenced by the political background, he said. I wish that visit had gone ahead. The King of Bahrain was supposed to come to. It was important to the State of Israel. On one of his trips in the course of the so-called Abraham Accords negotiations, he said, uh, he told his team during a flight, we have a lot fewer enemies now. That's a giant thing. Diane noted that his work had also involved contacts with the Saudis and many others. Asked whether it was appropriate for the Mossad to be so dominant in foreign Israel foreign relations. Cohen replied, the Mossad of 2021, if you'll permit me, in my view, has to be everywhere. He said he was wrong to have backed and personally helped arrange the influx of hundreds of millions of dollars from Qatar into Gaza. In recent years, he stressed that this money was not intended for tunnels and rockets, but to help Gaza's civilians. He believes that if the lives of Gaza's children, uh, if the lives of Gaza's civilians were improved, he said, the motivations for crises and war would be reduced. I was wrong, he said. He did not believe last month's 11-day war with Hamas was corrupt for the same reason. I thought we were in an arrangement in which calm would be maintained. Asked what he would miss most about uh, now that his Mossad career is over, Cohen said the excitement at the completion of a successful operation. I won't find anything like it. Still, he added, someone once said, you only climbed Everest once. You planted the flag, and now you go down and seek out the next summit. Asked in that context whether he hopes to be Prime Minister, Cohen said, not right now, but he not ruled it out. Correct, he said. And next we'll go over to JTA, Jewish Telegraphic Agency, to continue. First story from JTA, young Zionist Jews say they're fighting anti-Semitism on social media. What are they accomplishing? By Ben Sales, New York. Two weeks after the recent flare-up of violence in Israel and Gaza as fights over Israel and Palestine raged on social media, Julia Jassy wondered aloud whether any of her effort was worth it. Jassy, a student at the University of Chicago, has spent the better part of a year immersed in online skirmishes surrounding Israel and anti-Semitism. Last summer, as racial justice protests swept the country, she and a few other college students founded Jews, uh, Jewish on Campus, an Instagram account chronicling anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism facing Jewish students. It was modeled after similar accounts documenting racism at universities and high schools. In recent weeks, Jews on Campus, Jewish on Campus rather, has collected anonymous anecdotes of anti-Semitism online and in person in the wake of the Israel-Gaza conflict. Jassy said the account has been inundated with submissions. At the same time, harsh critics of Israel have taken aim at her 
and her personal posts, including some people she knows from school. We can't even have meaningful discussions. We just fight, she tweeted on June 3rd. It's toxic, and it brings us nowhere productive. Where do we go from here? I don't know about you, but I'm tired of it. Jesse is part of a small group of young, assertively Zionist Jews with an active social media presence who have taken it upon themselves to call out and respond to anti-Zionism, anti-Semitism, and the many instances in which they believe those two concepts overlap. But after weeks of fighting over Israel and Judaism on Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram, those activists and others who observe them are asking whether the effort of combating anti-Semitism online in real time is winnable or worthwhile. Does that fight create space for substantive dialogue or narrow it? Can a crusade to combat anti-Semitism distort our understanding of it? What does it do to the mental and emotional health of those involved? Is social media, with algorithms that incentivize division and anger and policies that have long been criticized for tolerating hate speech, the right arena for this debate? Do I think that having full-out brawls on social media are effective? No, said Susan Heller Pinto, the Anti-Defamation League Senior Director for International Affairs. If that's how somebody seeks to engage, it's really going to only appeal to the people who are, or are already hardened in their opinions. There's no secret meme, silver meme, that is being developed that someone is going to glance at and is going to say that explains the complexity of the Israeli-Palestinian situation to me. Social media does not lend itself to complexity, to nuance, and to deep research. That's been Jassy's experience as she has posted her feelings about Israel and seen vitriolic responses pour in. She said one acquaintance told her it was tone-deaf to post that her relatives in Tel Aviv were being targeted with rocket fire. Another tweeted that if he had to read another one of her brain-dead takes on my timeline, I'm gonna explode. Anyone can have a Twitter account and post whatever they like, Jassy told the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. That doesn't mean that their ideas are good or that they're going to be productive. Jassy and the rest of the cohort of young Zionists on social media are in their 20s and 30s, some still in college. They say they're on the front lines of confronting a problem, anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism in progressive spaces, especially online, that the rest of the Jewish community is just waking up to. They feel duty-bound to keep posting. The alternative, they say, is abandoning a public square to those who hate them. The issues surrounding progressive anti-Semitism seem to have their moment in the spotlight this month, said Blake Flayton, a student at George Washington University, who will graduate this summer. What we're seeing right now from the progressive left is a coalition organizing around hatred of Zionism, calling Zionism racism, and then excusing threatening pro-Israel Jews as racist by extension. There is nothing about fighting anti-Semitism and anti-Israel rhetoric online, an effort that has attracted funding in recent years from wealthy Jewish donors as well as the Israeli government. Israel and its military have a robust social media operation. Any number of groups dedicated to fighting anti-Semitism, from establishment organizations like the ADL to pro-Israel activist groups, such as Stand With Us, to an account called Stop Anti-Semites, call out what they view as hatred of Jews. 
Now, a few of the young Zionists, like Flayton, are trying to expand their work beyond skirmishes on Twitter and Instagram. Several are co-founders of two nation groups, the New, the New Zionist Congress and Jewish on Campus, both started in the past year and in the process of registering as nonprofits. Flayton, who is affiliated with the New Zionist Congress and Jassy, told JTA that their groups will rely on private donations and both declined to say where those donations would be coming from. For now, both groups are most visible on social media, Jewish on Campus primarily through its Instagram account, and the New Zionist Congress through the audio app Clubhouse, where it hosts discussions and a book club. Jewish on Campus also offers to personally help students who are facing anti-Semitism. Both are following in the footsteps of Barry Weiss, the pro-Israel writer who is a college student at Columbia University, gained public notice for criticizing the anti-Zionist rhetoric of professors at the New York City School. Weiss later went on to work on the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, which she left last year after alleging that other staff members called her a Nazi or derided her for being Jewish. The young people combating anti-Zionism on social media don't have the huge flat platform and professional reputation that Weiss has established, but they may be on their way with her help. Weiss has supported the groups and their young founders. While at the time, she commissioned a piece by Flayton who wrote that he was demonized in progressive spaces for being a Zionist. She is listed as a member of the New Zionist Congress and has promoted Jewish on campus on Twitter. In March, she tweeted that founders of the New Zionist Congress and other pro-Israel college students were the real leaders of the Jewish community. Those activists have become targets of the rhetoric they are condemning especially during the recent Israel-Gaza conflict. Many of them respond to criticism they receive online with more posts of their own, often showing solidarity with each other, sparking a cycle that can alternatively look like strength in numbers or a hostile conversation with no end in sight. I don't want to put myself through abuse or harassment, said Isaac DeCastro, a Cornell student who is a co-founder of both Jewish on Campus and the New Zionist Congress. DeCastro limits who can message him directly and comment on his posts. But he added, we need people out front who are putting out our perspective, putting out our story as a Jewish people. There need to be people out front. I don't think logging off completely is the answer because anti-Semitism isn't going to go away if we just close our eyes. Hen Matzig, a prominent pro-Israel activist, said being pugnacious isn't the right approach. Matzig has gained attention on the left for his aggressiveness online in the past, but said he has tried to soften that tone recently, emphasizing coexistence and the rights of both Israelis and Palestinians. Now he sees other Zionists going down the same path as he once did, and worries that punching back hard against anti-Zionism threatens to only make things worse. I think there's a serious issue with anti-Semitism online and hate speech against Jews online, and we have to combat it, said Matzig, the senior fellow at the Tel Aviv Institute. What I feel like many on the pro-Israel side are doing right now is to try to try and combat hate speech. I don't want to say with more hate speech, but with rhetoric that is not helping defuse the situation. Data on recent online anti-Semitism is hard to come by, but a few numbers give some sense to its scope. 
The phrase, Hitler was right, was tweeted 17,000 times from May 7th to 14th, according to the Anti-Defamation League. According to the Network Contagion Research Institute, which tracks hate online, the hashtag COVID-1948, connecting the pandemic and the year of Israel's founding, trended on Twitter in the United States. The Institute also found that tweets containing both Israel and genocide were shared as often as 2,000 times per hour during the fighting. Instagram accounts with enormous followings such as the model Bella Hadid's with 43 million followers shared content that accused Israel of colonization and ethnic cleansing and got millions of likes. There were explicitly anti-Semitic posts as well, such as a tweet coded quoting Hitler, now deleted, from a Pakistani movie star with more than one million followers. On TikTok, a Holocaust survivor wished users a Shabbat Shalom and got spammed with anti-Semitic messages. The online hate came alongside a wave of anti-Semitic incidents on the ground that, according to the ADL and other groups, spiked during the fighting in Israel and Gaza. The ADL found the number of anti-Semitic incidents in the nearly two weeks of fighting was more than double the figure in the previous two weeks. The incidents included a string of physical assaults as well as anti-Semitic and some anti-Zionist harassment and vandalism. There's the emotional impact of seeing these attacks in real time, said Ben Freeman, a Scottish Jew and new Zionist Congress member who wrote the recently published book, Jewish Pride. There's the impact of seeing my friends be attacked online, and then my family live in Israel, and I love Israel, and I care about Israel, so it was kind of like a triple whammy. It was online, it was in Israel, and it was happening in the diaspora. I really don't see those three things as separate from one another. Since a ceasefire in the Gaza-Israel rocket exchange, one of the fiercest fights online has been uh, not about Israel itself, but how to talk about anti-Semitic and anti-Zionist posts. Eve Barlow, a Scottish Jewish music journalist living in Los Angeles, wrote an essay in Tablet calling the negative posts directed at her and other Zionist activists a social media pogrom. She also wrote that they, are, uh, that they were permission for an online lynching and digital waterboarding. More than 20,000 tweets contained the name Eve Fartlow, which she called her hate name in an interview with JT. Barlow's piece generated backlash of its own from those who found it inappropriate to compare harassment on social media, however rampant to violent, often state-sponsored mob attacks on Eastern European Jewish villages. In a recent essay in The Nation, the progressive Jewish writer Talia Lavin, who once worked for JPA, called Barlow's piece misguided and narcissistic in light of the loss of life in Gaza and Israel and wrote that Barlow and her allies turned the word pogrom into a punchline. Even some other Zionist activists on social media balked at the terms, such as Matzig, who said that unless it's a situation where people were being killed, let's not compare it to a pogrom. Jamal Flayton said he wouldn't use pogrom to describe something happening on social media. He has used the hashtag Beinart pogroms to implicate Peter Benart, a left-wing Jewish opinion columnist, in the recent wave of anti-Semitic physical attacks in the U.S., Last year, Benart came out in favor of a lone democratic state for Jewish, Israelis, and Palestinians. To explain his accusation, Flayton pointed to a thread by an Israeli professor, Shane Moore, 
that accuses Minard of aiming to assign a collective guilt on American Jews for their complicity in some cosmic evil. Bernard told JTA that he had no comment on the accusation. Barlow said she stands by her word choice, as do some of her allies online, including Freeman, who called the essay a must-read. I didn't have reservations because I believe in the power of language, she said. People would rather get personally offended by the use of a word than to take seriously how Jews are being attacked in the street and how Jews are being attacked on the internet, and that's a problem. While Zionists may view social media as a social medium where they are failing to win a public relations battle, pro-Palestinian activists see the same platforms bringing them unprecedented support and changing the way the media covers the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Ahmad Abuznaid, the executive director of the U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights, told JTA that the video's shared violence against the Palestinians prompted a different conversation than maybe folks thought we could have a few years ago. What we saw was legitimate supremacy of one human being over another, and that paints the picture, he said in an interview with JTA during the fighting. They're making very clear to people what settler colonialism and ethnic cleansing looks like without us having to attach all these academic definitions. Abuznaid is skeptical as well of pro-Israel activists who say they are victims of anti-Semitism amid the debate over Israel and Gaza. On May 26, he tweeted that Zionists referred to any pro-Palestinian advocacy as anti-Semitic, from accusations of genocide to calls for an Israel boycott to the idea that Palestinian lives matter. The debate over how to distinguish between criticism of Israel and anti-Semitism has consumed a subset of American Jews for years. Over the past few months, the three competing definitions of anti-Semitism, all backed by various groups of scholars and organizations, have drawn the line in different places. The most widely adopted definition from the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance says calling the existence of Israel a racist endeavor or holding it to an unfair double standard qualify as anti-Semitism. The two more recent definitions provide a wider berth for Israel criticism. A few of the Zionist activists have taken a hard line on popular pro-Palestinian slogans that say amount to calling for the end of Israel or the expulsion of its Jews. Freeman believes that the phrase Free Palestine is anti-Semitic if it's tweeted in reply to a condemnation of Hamas, because he says it seeks to divert attention from Hamas's crimes. Barlow said the chant from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, is a genocidal call for the end of Israel. Barlow is not alone in objecting to that chant. In 2018, CNN fired Mark Lamont Hill, a progressive professor for using it. Rabbi Joel Jacobs, the director of Trua, a liberal rabbinic human rights group, did not address any activists specifically, but said that some pro-Israel activists can be too quick to label criticism of Israel as anti-Semitism. She said that some anti-Zionist language on the left is very harsh, and it's very hard to hear from people who are committed to the safety of the state of Israel, but it doesn't necessarily cross the line into anti-Semitism. For example, Jacob said Free Palestine in and of itself is not anti-Semitic, but it would be anti-Semitic to post the term in response to a Jewish video that has nothing to do with Israel. 
Harry Rice, a former ADL employee who now works for the New Israel Fund, a charity that supports an array of progressive groups in Israel, said, I don't think hate online is overblown. But he also said that some Jews may conflate anti-Israel rhetoric with anti-Semitism, which doesn't leave a lot of space for conversation about Palestinian rights. Rice also worries that some of the more aggressive social media fights against anti-Semitism may string together individual events to misconstrue the nature of anti-Jewish hate. Rice stressed that he did not want to call out individuals, but said that some online activism creates an alarmist picture of anti-Semitism, a problem that is all too real but, in his interview, not structural. I do have a sense of a general feeling of grievance and of a kind of narrative of Jewish victimization that's often, I feel, misplaced and that doesn't describe my experience as a Jewish person in American institutions and our access to power, he said. I think too often this places individual acts of anti-Semitic speech or violence as evidence of institutional or structural discrimination, which doesn't, I think, describe the American Jewish experience and access to power. Zionist activists dispute the idea that they are making too much of Jew hatred or conflating criticism of policy with anti-Semitism, and say they draw the line at opposing Israel's right to exist. I don't care how Israel you think the settlement project is, because I would happily lend my voice to those concerns, or how corrupt you think Benjamin Netanyahu is, Blayton said, but added denying the Jews a homeland, denying the Jews protection, is hateful and bigoted in and of itself. Flayton and others do say they feel politically homeless as progressive Jews who are unapologetically Zionist. Flayton articulated those feelings in a 2019 New York Times op-ed. I'm a young, gay, left-wing Jew, yet I am called an apartheid enabler, a baby killer, and a colonial apologist, he wrote. Flayton told JTA that from his perspective, left-wing anti-Semitism is more of a problem than anti-Semitism on the right. What we've been seeing for the past month is that anti-Semitism on the left disguises itself as justice, it disguises itself as advocating for human rights, and it tries to convince the Jews that they, bought, that they brought this hatred upon themselves, he said. I'm still going to vote for things like a $15 minimum wage, universal health care, and environmental reforms, etc., but there's a lot of Jews who are being pushed out of these spaces rather aggressively. Freeman said he was convinced of the dangers of progressive anti-Semitism during the era when Jeremy Corbyn, whom most British Jews consider anti-Semitic, led the Labour Party and ran two competitive campaigns for Prime Minister. Freeman lives in Hong Kong, but watching from afar, he worries that the same trend is happening in the United States. What you're experiencing now at universities in Britain, we've been experiencing for years, he said. I feel totally betrayed by the left, and as a gay man, that was my political home. Matzig feels that approach is misguided. He, under he understands the impulse to leave a political space that feels hostile, but it said it would make, uh, but said it would be a mistake for Jews to abandon one half of the political map. I see young Jewish students turn to the right because this is the only place that will accept them, and they're wrong, he said. If we're just going to be aligned on one side, it will be a disaster in the Jewish community. Some did say that despite their efforts, fighting anti-Semitism or anti-Zionism online feels like a losing battle, if only because of the numbers. 
Late had pointed out that Bella Hadid has about three times as many followers on Instagram than the number of Jews in the world. We're being pummeled, Freeman said. We're fighting a losing battle here because we're just so outnumbered, Clayton said. But the way to even the odds a little bit is to gain as much traction as we can within the town square, within the public forum, to wage the war of words and learn how to win the war of words so that more people understand your argument. Jesse also thinks the social media battle is important, but it's begun to feel less appealing. She said she wants to keep working in the Jewish world and pursue a career in politics or international relations. She still believes in having the conversations and debates that have occupied the past several months of her life. Jesse hopes, however, that more will happen face to face. I do think that the internet has become a forum for discussion and, of, uh, and a public sphere, sphere of sorts, and so I think that it is important to combat anti-Semitism online and spread ideas on the internet, she said. It's an important space, but it's not the most important space. We have to take that work also offline. And I think that's when things start to seem a lot more possible. And next to JTA, after Jewish groups are left out of Lincoln's Israel briefing, the White House promises to hire a Jewish liaison by Ron Campeas, Washington. When the veteran Jewish leaders logged into a call to hear from the Secretary of State about his trip to Israel, many were surprised by the guest list. While many of the groups typically rep uh, present on such calls were represented, so was an official from the Holocaust Museum here. What they thought did he have to do with the Middle East peace? They were more taken aback when they realized who was absent. Representatives of the major Jewish denominations, public policy groups, and an influential Jewish women's organization. The absences from the June 4th call with Anthony Blinken was the latest incidence of what Jewish leaders are privately calling a surprising tone deafness for an administration led by President Joe Biden, whose ties with the organized Jewish community go back decades. The misstep accelerated calls on the administration to name a White House Jewish liaison and State Department anti-Semitism monitor, two positions that have gone unfilled even as the Biden administration staffs up in other departments and responds to a spike in reports of anti-Semitic incidents. The Trump administration drew Jewish organizational complaints for never naming a Jewish liaison and waiting two years to name an anti-Semitism monitor. Previous administrations had named those positions at their outset. The absence from the call of Orthodox, Conservative, and Reform movements, each with deep ties to Israel and long histories of seeking to influence peacemaking in the region, particularly rankled. I know there is not currently a State Department special envoy, nor a White House Jewish liaison, but nonetheless, how can that be? An official at one of the movements said in a letter sent to the State Department official, Kara McDonald, who organized the call. No organizations have more direct and frequent personal and emotional contact with the Jewish community than the religious streams or movements, their rabbis and synagogues, even as we emerge from COVID, said the letter, which JTA obtained. Well, that's all the time we have this week for the Jewish News Hour. This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I thank you very much for listening.